Every week on our regular episodes of Shift Shift Bloom, I get to interview people whose lives are very different from mine, and we talk about how each has navigated the twists and turns inherent in transformation. But I wonder, what's universal about how people change? What are the common threads, the connective tissue? I tend to look at change through the lens of my own experience, for the most part, the artist's life. Lucky for us, my curiosity is shared by the co-creator of Shift Shift Bloom, Dr. John Lyons, luminary and author in the field of clinical psychology and systems change. Who better to help me unpack all the questions that fill my mind when the interviews are over? I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, TCOM Takeaways, my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about a recent interview. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. John Lyons, and we're here to talk about my interview with those two crazy method actors, Gabe Fazio and Brandy Hotchner. I know them really well. I'm dying to know what you made of this episode. Yeah, well, it, it sounded to me like you had some fun, Kristen. Or should I, I call you, or should I call you Sorelli? <laughs> oh, it, it's Chirelli. <laughs> Chirelli. Yes. Right, yes. Right. I did have some right. fun. Yeah, sounds like it. So, so that, I thought I was fascinated, actually, because, I mean, my secret little aspiration is I always sort of wanted to be an actor at some point in my life. So hmm. it was sort of interesting to, to hear them talk about the work. And it also was useful to me to realize, actually, I made a good career choice. So, um, so it sounds, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it was impressive. I, I was quite fascinated by it. I was also fascinated by what uh, Gabe was talking about. Actually, both Gabe and Brandy were talking a little bit about the misunderstanding of method acting uh, in popular culture. So, Yeah, I wasn't sure really what to expect because even though we've known each other for so long, we haven't sat down to talk about really? the method or acting mm-hmm. or life in that way. So um, mm-hmm. it was it was fascinating for me too. And I think it's interesting that you say that you had aspirations to be an actor because actually you do find that actors have very similar personality profiles to both attorneys, trial lawyers, litigators. Interesting. And a lot of actors um, leave acting and go into uh, mental health, go into becoming therapists, which I think has something to do with the fact that we study psychology and that we're good listeners. And so I know actually two or three of my own friends have left the business and gone, gone that direction. So that's just interesting. Where do you want to start today? Well, I had six observations uh, from this. I I seem to be stabilizing uh, the number. (laughs) Although I do think that notion of therapy or helping in general as acting is an interesting one because you have to be compassionate and you have to care, but you can't really completely care because you can't mm-hmm. take on that much pain. So you have to give off the appearance of caring without internalizing the actual caring. And so I think that is an acting skill, actually. So, yeah. um, so I've always wondered about that. Anyway, so but the 
the so I have six things that I, that I really wanted to chat about, and maybe we can circle back to this that last point. Um, okay. At some point. So the first one is which I thought was very useful because I, I do think that anytime somebody does something easy that looks easy, that people think it is easy. Yeah. And so they both highlighted how much you have to practice and how much you have to have an approach. And I think that's a universal truth that if you want to do anything well, you have to practice and you have to have an approach to it. I think that's one of the things I think we've heard as a theme to people in this sequence who have talked about, you know, making fairly permanent changes. It's not Mm -hmm. something that they just um, would wing it. They actually would practice it and learn it. And, you know, it reminded me a little bit of the, uh, you know, the, 10,000 hour rule kind of thing that you do have to put in the time you do have to put in the effort Uh, but you also need an approach so it's not just making it up you have an approach so I think that's really important for uh, those of us who are in the helping professions is Mm -hmm. that you have to practice helping just like you have to practice everything else and you have to have an approach and so I think that's was a really important takeaway I think it's a universal truth that's great it It does remind me, though, at least for actors and the actors process, and I think you could read between the lines with what we were talking about. Sometimes the approach you've studied doesn't work and you need another approach. You need to change your approach or you need to have a lot of tools in your toolkit. And that, I think, goes into the 10,000 hours as well. Yes. Oh, that's actually a really important point. And you did. It was sort of between the lines. But I think that's so true is that if you just do one thing. You know, then you're that one kind of, you you play one part and the really yeah. good actors can wear different clothes and play different parts and be in different places emotionally uh, yeah. as opposed to, and we talked a little bit about that in an earlier episode, so that some people always play the same character and yeah. some people have incredible range. Yeah. I would throw out though in your list of great performances, my personal favorite is Billy Bob Thornton and Sling Blade. Oh, that's a great one. That's great. We could have probably gone on for hours with yeah, that little I got game. That sense. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good one yeah. though. Yes, we can add that to the list. Uh, what's number two? All right, perfect. Number two is I just I was intrigued by the reverence for mystery. You know, mm. and the reason that that caught my attention, I think that was your line actually, is you know the scientists here. So we're always trying to uncover things and make them kind of explainable and so forth, but. There may come at a moment where that's not helpful, actually, and that, you know, having this reverence for mystery may be a, a key part of being happy and being uh, having good well-being and kind of accept that you don't can't possibly know everything and that you can't possibly understand everything and that some things it's just okay for it to be a mystery and you can just appreciate that and have some reverence for that. So I, I found that comment fascinating and probably useful for me personally as much as anything else. So, I think that's core for me. I've had to remind myself of it again and again. I don't think that we touched on this subject very much, or at least if we did, we didn't go very deeply. But this idea that there's a spiritual aspect to being a performer, and maybe there's a spiritual aspect to anything that anyone considers a vocation. You know, I'm thinking about my last interview with Greg, but this idea that you're co-creating and you have to leave some space 
for whatever it is you believe in to be part of the process. And sometimes that just translates to timing. And sometimes that translates to you're going to spend some time on a part and have some places where you feel blocked and you're not going to be able to shift that until some future time. And that's, that's a mystery. So, um, I think most performers shy away from talking about the spirituality of the process, but I do think there's an aspect of that to it. I, you know, listening to you talk, what comes to mind is wondering whether or not just to be authentic there's a spiritual component to it. Just to allow yourself to be who you actually are, uh, which has been another theme across people. That might very well be predominantly a spiritual thing to allow yourself to go to that place because you're accepting yourself in ways that you can't possibly explain or know. I mean, you can, you know, yeah. you can try, but good luck. I have, so I have a rule with my students. I call it the 36 the 36 rule, which okay. is you can you can no longer blame your parents. Once you're a 36-year-old, you can no longer blame your parents because you've been an adult for longer than you were a child. So wow. now you're, now it's on you, right? So I love that. But there's that, that sort of expl, expl, explanatory model that people try and create. And, and maybe that's not actually what being authentic is. Maybe it's just kind of a spiritual acceptance of who you are. And that seems like for the really good actors, that's an important skill to have is to be able to go to that authentic place and then layer upon it. Yeah, it's really, it's complicated in a way, but I love what you just said. Authenticity in itself is a spiritual practice, not just for an actor, but for any human. Anybody. To, that yeah. idea of stripping the layers away that Gabe, Gabe said this great phrase about you you're seeing the change of the seasons and that is either stripping the layers away or adding the layers on. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. But to start with the base of authenticity and to get there in it first is, I think you're onto something there, really spiritual. Let's talk yeah. about number three. Number three. Um, I was struck by something because I've, I've been, I've been thinking about this a bit. Uh, when I think it was Brandy made a comment of how, you know, the seven-year rule, you know, I like these things, you know, the rule of five, yeah. I have the 36 rule. Anyway, the seven-year rule that you don't really can't go to places that have been recently traumatizing, and that's just a bad idea. And there's so many people who do uh, work with people who have been traumatized that want to dig into the meaning of that trauma when that trauma is fresh. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how dangerous that actually is and that is trauma and as I understand trauma-informed care it's not always digging in to talk about the trauma it's respecting the deeply personal reality of when horrible things happen to you so I was yeah. struck that that's dangerous for actors and I can completely see that I think I've heard you talk about that with your students that you you have to know when to not open some doors of because there's just what's underneath that is frightening and that makes a lot of sense but I think that's also true and it's maybe it's actually even more true when you're trying to help somebody and respecting that kind of some things I, was, I remember my uh, the first one of the reasons why I'm a psychologist my first psychology professor was talking about Sally Bell was talking about with some people you just have to know not to go there you just yeah. do not want them to talk about it because it's 
not going to resolve anything. It's just going to unearth stuff that really you can't put back into the box. So, which I think is an important uh, missive, an important thing for everybody who talks to people who have been through difficult or horrific things. Maybe it's none of your business sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. I was struck by that also. First, because I really appreciate that they're both so well-read on their mm-hmm. topic. And probably in in their particular case, in reading about Stanislavski and Strasberg and all those teachers and the method, much more well-read than I am. Like they have really gone down the rabbit hole. So when she pulled that little factoid out about Strasberg said, you don't touch anything for seven years, I was like, wow, I want to, I want to follow up and find out what, you know, what book that's in or when he said that. But yeah. And to your point, I wonder if this also adds on to what you brought to the table about, you know, practice. It's like having the intuition as a therapist or an acting teacher, when you don't have the facts and you don't know if that thing happened Mm -hmm. seven years ago, or if why they're in a mood today is because of a recent trauma that intuition to not go there, not talk right. about it, that only comes from practice, you know, mm-hmm. and, and knowing how to read people because you've spent so many hours reading people right. and asking right. and, and asking good questions, too, I'm sure. But yeah. yeah, right. I think that's absolutely true. And so figuring out how to do that and how to maybe it's when you're just learning, you know, deciding on this, you know, putting yourself on the side of caution might be better than, you know, being that person who uncovers that trauma, which, you know, I think I remember in my own training that was seen as, as, oh, you're really good because you've yeah. uncovered this stuff. And I'm not completely convinced that was always true. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Like knowing when to mm. push the button isn't always, maybe it wasn't you the greatest know, gift, right? Not the greatest gift, right? <laughs> so. uh, what's, what are we on? Are we on number I think we're on four? number four. Number four. Which is my favorite, actually. Okay. I think it, you shouldn't have favorites, John. Okay, I won't have favorites. <laughs> but, this one, but this is the one that I, I felt most uh, aligned with, which is the uh, the issues of imagination and play and the yeah. permission to imagine. And so uh, where I went in listening to that part of the episode was, you know, that if you think about all our different interviews, all the interviews of people you've talked to, all of them were able to kind of imagine for themselves this other state, right? And that's, so maybe that's such a fundamental part of change if you can't. I mean, so we, we took home the message from Greg that a lot of people had that you have to believe it's right, but maybe you have to believe it's right and you can imagine it as being right, that you can actually put yourself into that change and picture it. It's very Jungian when you think about it, because if you imagine the change, the change happens. You know? yeah. I'm fond of saying if you say it out loud, it's going to happen. But a piece of that is your ability to imagine it. Your, can you put, your, put it in your head that that's a possibility? Now, I don't think that causes it to happen. I think it allows it to happen. Mm. And I think that's a big difference. Big difference. It comes back again a little bit, I think, to mystery and co-creation. Right, yes, you can indeed. imagine it, but you have to leave space for all, all of the that idea of don't 
don't worry about the how, you know, in, in my woo woo world, they would say, you know, release the how don't, don't worry mm -hmm. about the how don't put your energy on the how just, just keep seeing that thing that you want to happen, you know, keep imagining well, it. I'm always pushing aspirational management as a part of TCOM and that's exactly the idea. You know, I think strategic planning is oftentimes a bunch of crap because, you know, it's this thing of stuff you do and I don't know, I think you want to imagine what you want to be. And then you want to be open to, this is very zen, so I apologize, um, but you want to be open to the different possibilities that allow you to walk to that particular place. But if you over plan how to walk to that particular place, you might limit yourself to thinking, oh no, my strategic plan tells me I need to do this next, and then I do that next. But my experience of life is never that linear, that you really just want to make sure you it's sort of like when I drive without the GPS, you know, mm. I know where I want to get to, but I yeah. don't really care, you know, if I turn right here or turn right two blocks up, you know, if yeah. I know where I'm trying to get to, I'm comfortable with that. So, Can you tell me a little bit more about this thought that you have about aspirational management being more part of TCOM? I'm just curious. Well, the problem in the helping sectors is the management is all about compliance. And so we've set up mm. this uh, punishment reward kind of model of teaching, which is very Western. It's very European and American in terms of, you know, we reward people for what you do, what you should do, and you punish people for what you shouldn't do. And so in helping sectors, there's all these rules and regulations, and you have to do this, and then you do that. And if you don't do that, and you don't document that you do that, then you might not get paid, and all this other stuff. But the problem is, is nobody gets into this work in the public sector to get paid. They don't get paid much at all. Mm -hmm. And so nobody is motivated by money. And punishment doesn't teach. It teaches you that you don't want to get caught. And it teaches it doesn't teach you what not to do even. It teaches you what not to report. And so wow. it's not a effective. So we know, we know that compliance models of management don't work very well, but we're so stuck in them. Um, I was almost going to use the language of your guest, but I will behave myself. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> we're stuck. And we, we're so stuck in this kind of notion of, oh, no, here's your M&M for doing good work. And no, I'm going to take that M&M back because you didn't do good work as a learning model that it's just sad. Because I think, and this is also, this is actually Master Sun, uh, Taoism, is that you really, actually, that's not how people's journeys work. You you want to align the organizational aspirations with the individual aspirations. So the way I manage the center, the IF Center at University of Kentucky is with aspirational management. And so we have aspirations for TCOM, we have aspirations for the center, but every member of the center also has their own, has their own aspirations. And so this works well, this, the center works well when individual aspirations align with the center's aspirations. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work at all when they don't. And so wow. we've actually used this to kind of help people say, oh, this is actually not the place I want to be because my aspirations, I can't meet them in this particular place. Wow. And that's great. Or they work with us for a couple of years and they credential themselves and their aspirations leads them on to something else. Yeah. That's great. That's what we want. We want we want people that's striving and achieving and living their best lives and not like, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't fill out that paperwork the right way, therefore you're not a good employee. That's 
nonsense in mm. many in the large scheme of things. So that's, you know, that's the elevator speech of aspirational management. That's cool. It it's it feels like what did you say compliance uh com- compliance is the way things work and you know you actually you find that in a classroom you find that in an acting classroom oh, that one one of the things that you have to push back so hard with with the students of all ages not just college age students is they think there's a right and a wrong way to play a part to to approach mm-hmm. a character and there isn't but that is what they're looking for. They're looking for, did right. I do it right? Yes, here's your M&M. You did it right. Yay. Right. Um, and it's really, really hard to, to, to break that down. It's, we've, we've absorbed it in our, in our Western world as right. uh, a way of being and a way of doing and a way of so, achieving. So when I assign a paper, I drive my students nuts because they say, well, Dr. Lyons, how long should the paper be? And I'll look at them and I'll say... What kind of question is that? You know, the paper should be as long as it needs to be for you to say what you want to say. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to tell you it has to be five pages or 10 pages or 300 pages. It needs to be as long as it needs to be for you to communicate what you're trying to communicate. Yeah. And for me to put a limit on it or a standard on it is nonsense. It's not, it's not what the purpose of the paper is, is for you to write 10 pages by adjusting the font and the spacing. All right. I mean, it's the, the, the purpose of writing a paper is for you to communicate verbally something that you've learned. And so why make it about compliance with some length when the goal is for you to learn something that's of value to you that you can carry forward? Mm. This, this conversation, I don't want to, I don't want to drive the car in this direction, but it reminds me <laughs> very much of my conversation with DeLacy when he talked about rules, having rules and knowing what they are. And then like knowing when it's time to step out of the rule or yes, push the yes. bou- the line of the rule. Yes. And that's very much what it's like in an acting classroom too. Sure. There do have to be, mm-hmm. there does have to be some framework, but the best actors break the rules. They learn the rules and then they learn, mm-hmm. they learn how to break them too. I would say, so what I try to do is bend the rules. Bend. So, cause you know, in a, yes particularly in a bureaucracy. So I, my, uh, my dean told me that, John, you are a dean's worst nightmare, right? Because I always bend the rules. But, you know, it's the director of the Center for Innovation in Population Health. You can't innovate unless you bend the rules because it's actually changing the rules that is what innovation actually is. And so mm-hmm. I always bend the rules. I try not to break them because that can be uh, problematic or illegal and as many rules exist for very good reasons so but i will bend them so, if i think that's where the innovation needs to lie or the direction it needs to take yeah and i think uh i was talking to two rule benders for sure oh big um, time whether whether you could get that completely or not so so bring me to number 5 number 5 is uh I thought uh, Gabe said something really important when he said, you know, not everybody has every gift. You know, not everybody is born to be an actor. And I think this is the big challenge with some people's approach to giving everybody an opportunity to do everything. Uh, you know, everybody gets a door prize, right? So because yeah. it ends up making everything mediocre. Uh, so some people have skills. Everybody probably has a gift of something. But not everybody has a gift of everything. And so finding what your gift is, is the journey of life and not trying to pretend that you have a gift when you don't. 
So that's why I'm not an actor, right? It's not really my gift. I mean, I, I used to be a horrible public speaker, and I've gotten better. I'm actually a pretty good public speaker, but uh, initially I was horrible. But I, And it's the same reason I'm not a good actor, is I could not allow myself to be myself. Mm-hmm. But I worked with a couple of dear friends who were uh, older than me, and they taught me how to just be yourself when you speak. It's, it goes back to that authenticity again. Yeah. And then now, now I became actually a very good speaker. But it was just learning to whoever you are, be that person. So I'm a smart aleck, actually. So that's what my mother at least always told me. And allowing myself to be that kind of that smart aleck and, and how I communicate uh, is how I can be authentic. So it's humor and satire, which, of course, you have to be a little careful of these days. I think he did bring up that point. And he even we've we edited out some of his uh, some of our conversation around mediocrity. But I think what's interesting to me as you're talking is I do think a lot of people are drawn to acting or to the arts in general, believing that they have a gift. And what they actually discover is training as an artist strips those layers away and when they get down to who they really are, they're they're maybe not going to be a professional fill in the blank actor, mm-hmm. but but they've gained something really really important in the process. They've certainly gained skills, but they've they've revealed themselves to themselves, and they can then move on and do something else, having yes. found that authenticity and gotten gotten what they needed out of the the seeking. So I think you're actually, I think I, I haven't spoken to her about this in exactly those terms, but I think you've described my daughter's mm. uh, career in New York City. So she went to conservatory and she uh, she worked in New York City in the acting in the theater community for oh, close to 10 years, uh, mm. eight years at least. Uh, she was always employed, uh, you know, but. You know, never, never for more than six weeks, and usually for yeah. two or three weeks at a time, right? Yeah. And she learned that she really wasn't gifted, I think, in acting, but she had this interesting gift. She could remember every line of every character of a full play. And so yeah. she actually became a, a stage director, and she was actually quite good at that because she could remember every line of every play, and so she knew exactly who needed to do what next and so forth. She then translated that, and now she is a um, uh, she does logistics for airlines. And so that's the same skill set. It's just a different yep. application, and she's just moved right up. She does training now, and so she's the lead trainer and uh, um, instructor in uh it's not air traffic control. It's the it's the logistics on the on the airplane side. You know, if okay. you if you uh, if you're at the airport and you see the pilot stop and get that print out of their uh, flight, that's the stuff that her group generates for every flight okay. uh, in her airline. So so she's great at it, and she's just shined in that. But I think she discovered that gift through her work in theater because it does kind of force you to confront what you do well and and what mm. you don't and uh it's it's it gives you feedback and that feedback is immediate it can yeah. be a little bit cruel i suspect at times or difficult to take but effective and and i think great for her i think she treasures the 10 years she spent studying and participating in theater i'll bet i don't know one person who stayed in the business or left the business who regrets 
their time training as an actor or working as an actor or aspiring to be. I always think that endeavor is a worthy one. Tell me about number six. Number six is uh, right at the end, you talked about collaboration. Um, and uh, everybody was on board with the fact that uh, you're a better actor if you're working with other good actors, yeah. right? That there's this kind of, or a good director and an actor, right? And that there's this, this interpersonal part of it where you play off each other and you strengthen each other and you, uh, it's, it's part of how it works and you trust each other. So I think that's also kind of a universal. It's certainly true in a lot of, uh, of helping uh, sector work that you have to be able to play off each other, to interact with each other, to support each other and being better versions of yourself. And, you know, I, the way I frame it oftentimes is that every relationship is transformational, is that every relationship we have, we try to help other people become, you know, the best version of themselves. And that's true in any direction of any relationship. So I remember I was doing a, a, some focus groups with some youth who had been in treatment in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, and there's this 16-year-old. And he said, you know, John... I'm on my third therapist, and she's doing the, she's brand new, and she's doing the best I, she can, and I'm just doing the best I can to help her. So wow. he took it upon himself, because he had this rotation, he had been in child welfare, this rotation of the brand new therapists, you know, they're all trainees, and he took it upon himself to learn how to train them wow. uh, as a part of his responsibility, right? Now... You know, we train on poor people, right? That's how the helping sector works. And as soon as you get credentialed, you, some people leave and go and work for the rich people because you get paid a little bit more. But some of those poor people take their responsibilities quite seriously in terms of helping people that they come across learn um, how to be better versions of themselves. So I, I think it crosses every yeah. direction. And it goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about last week about giving back is such a fundamental part of meaning. You know, having some contributing to the greater good is so fundamental to people feeling good about themselves. That's remarkable. That 16-year-old young person, young man, could, could articulate that. Could, yes. could first of all do it and then could also articulate that. I think a lot of actors would also say, they find satisfaction in their work because, at least theater actors, I, that there's some mm -hmm. feeling of providing a service and lifting people's yeah. spirits. Again, it comes back to the spiritual for me, but people who go see a play and in that room together have a common experience of whatever, you know, learning something new or being moved, having long-held beliefs challenged by the material or seeing a version of their life up there on stage and, you know, ha having it having impact. I think that is important to a lot of, I won't just say actors, but to a lot of artists where they do find value in their work. And that's why a lot of people stick with it, even though it often is not a financially rewarding pursuit. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine that you don't feel something that you're given from the audience. But I also would imagine that if you are performing at your peak and you're helping the other actors in that particular yes. play or whatever, uh, 
raise their their own ability, you know, they were finding their own peak, that that must be a charge, not because of your own performance, but because you're seeing this other performance in real time that you know is at their peak. That's got to be like very rewarding for an actor, I would imagine. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I think there is this loop and you'll often hear like, you know, really seasoned actors say they had this great experience with this young cast because they get to Mm -hmm. kind of lead, but, you know, there's a generous way to lead. And then there's very sort of, let's say, you know, uh, self-serving or arrogant way to lead. And I think, I think the best actors are the ones who can, who can lead in that subtle way and lead, lead as a collaboration. That's for sure been my experience on both ends. You know, when I was a younger performer and now being not such, not such a young whippersnapper anymore, just being part of an ensemble is it's community it's communal and there is collaboration Mm. in that process from start to finish yeah it becomes sort of your emotional family in somebody in some very real way i imagine because after you've stripped everything off and got to your authentic self and then layered on or layered off or whatever you're doing in terms of finding your character i would imagine that's a pretty high level Mm -hmm. of intimacy with the other people who are going through a similar kind of process because it's all based on starting finding your authentic place in order to get to the character. Yeah, absolutely. It it makes me curious or or want to talk more to you about. We didn't really talk about actors as storytellers, but one of the big mm-hmm. things that you and I have talked about with Tcom is people tell stories and people need to tell stories and people's stories are not happening in a vacuum and that's part of what we do as actors too, is we tell a story together. And so we really have to be, you know, they always say, you know, you, you got to be in the same play. Um, so did that at all hit you in any way while you were listening, even though we weren't talking about it directly? Yes, in two ways. I mean, the first was when uh, I think it was Gabe talked about uh, that when you are doing your method, you can't hurt mm-hmm. other people. So, because I, I know I've read a little bit about people who are doing method who become, if they're going to play somebody who's a bit of an ass or a jerk, they act like a jerk and they actually insult people and do this stuff that's probably hurtful to people. And so, what I heard him say is to be respectful. It's your method; it's not their method. And so, don't you know? Yeah. Don't be a jerk. Um, don't you know? Respect the fact that that you're doing this for your profession. You're not doing this for any other reason. So I thought, I, I heard that. But I also heard it in a whole collaboration process of how, you know, you're bouncing off with each other and, and all that kind of way of being with each other. So I think that's hmm. powerful. Other than Billy Bob Thornton in, in Sling Blade, do you have other uh, performances you might add to the list? I would put Jack Nicholson's court appearance in A Few Good Men as uh, like w- one of the best hmm. scenes. Um because, and maybe Tom Cruise's role in it is undervalued because he was the the straight man to to um, Jack Nicholson's rage. Uh, but I thought that was a very well done. And maybe it's as much directing as it was mm. acting. But I would put that as among my favorite scenes in terms of what I thought was great acting. Well, I'll keep being on the lookout for those and making that list. It was fun to to uh, to riff and. I'll be yeah. I'll be on the lookout for transformational performances 
of of all sorts as we go forward. Yes. I did think that was interesting when she talked about, I think it was Brandy talked about the fact that that movie actors have a much more difficult task than theater actors because theater actors can be relatively linear yes. in their change process, but but movie actors are coming in and out of different of their character at yes. different stages, and so like Pacino and Godfather had to be this massive transformation, but doing it out of sequence and so forth. So I thought that was yeah, it's a really uh, it's a different process, and I think they both have their challenges. Theater actors have to do the same show eight shows a week, and that's oh, yeah, an, a feat right. of stamina. But movie actors often work out of sequence, and so they're calling on these bits and pieces of the transformation almost at random, um, which is, which is pretty tough. Right. That's gotta be tough. Well, actually I, I just, one last story about the, that, that oh, issue. Yeah. So I, in my, I given the same talk probably thousands mm-hmm. of times, but I've done training and it's the same thing. And so what I discovered, the art of it is not learning what to say but making what you say sound like you're saying it for the very first time, which is probably like Absolutely. theater acting. As if, as if this is the first time this has ever come out of your mouth. That's exactly what we say in the theater. First time, every time. So every time right. you go out oh, there. Okay. That's yeah. what that means. First time, every time. Ah. Like the audience has never seen the show before. So even if you're bored, you mm. have to find a way to make it fresh and make it seem like this is the first time the story right. is unfolding which is a challenge. I never knew what that saying meant, but okay, I, I completely There you go, and, I know, and now I know what the 36-year rule is, and I will stop blaming there my you parents. Go. You cannot blame your parents. You're past that by several oh, years now. So. Don't tell a lady's age. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always fun to see you and talk with you, John. We have one more episode in this season, and I'll look forward to unpacking that mm-hmm. with you next week. I look forward to it as well. Next week. Bye. Bye. Take care. Shift Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at PradeFoundation.org and at TCOMConversations.org and by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at IPH.UKY.EDU.